Well, this morning uh, at 5.30, uh, I was on my bicycle exercising and turned on the television to see the election news coverage. And what came on was a commercial that showed, maybe you've seen it, it showed, I had not seen it before, it showed a, like a gigantic x-ray machine. And uh, behind the x-ray machine, you saw these two skeletons approaching each other, because you were just looking through the x-ray, and they kissed each other and hugged each other, and they came around, they peeked around the edge of the x-ray screen, and you saw it was two women kissing, and then later two women, men kissing and hugging, and later it was two disabled people, and they had various scenes. Uh, the whole thing lasted 30 seconds. And then the, uh, the screen came up, and it said these words. Love knows no biases. Love knows no disabilities. Love knows no genders. Three statements which are all profoundly Christian. What was not said in the, and of course was the, the big statement behind the whole commercial. Oh, anybody seen that commercial? Just curious. Oh, okay, well. I waste my time telling you about it. You've already seen it. The x-ray commercial. Um, the whole, what was not said in the commercial that apparently you've all seen is that love must, if it's authenticated, must climax in a sexual act. And two, the amazing disembodiment of love from the human body. So I thought in 30 seconds they contradicted last week's sermon and this week's sermon. <laughs> but it does show how, what we are facing uh, because the modern-day Gnostics have a lot more technology behind them and can do a much better job than the first century. But we are now in a place where we have to be reminded again, right in the fabric of creation, indeed woven into, our, into creation, into all our own bodies, in our great theological truths in God's design. And we have a responsibility in these days to roll up our sleeves. This can take us quite a few generations to, to get it done, but a lot of work to do to reframe all of these issues in a proper way. We certainly have to go a long way from simply saying what we're against to what we are for. We can no longer be, you know, I think essentially the, the uh, Christians have gone into two basic camps. This is like massively overstating the case, but just to kind of give the caricatures at least. The character of the, uh, the conservatives are, is that we are like these angry people in demonstrations holding placards, that something we're shouting out that we're against. So the world's like, we don't need people shouting at us with, with like posters. But then there's the progressives who, like it doesn't matter what comes through the cultural landscape, what blow, the latest culture when it blows through, they'll find some way for the Bible to say that. Because they've determined that we must be like a cultural echo chamber. Well, the, church, the, the current culture does not need the church to be angry. It doesn't need the church to be an echo chamber. There must be a better way. And this is what this whole series is about exploring, whether or not we can embody a new vision, more holistic, more nuanced, more beautiful, more compelling, as we said last week, singing a more compelling song to this generation, and maybe it'll maybe some generations yet before we can get this song out, that resonates with biblical and historic witness in profound ways. This is the fifth part in this series where we're seeking to draw some insights from John Paul II's, the late Pope's uh, Theology of the Body, and these are homilies he gave between 1979 and 1984. I read all of these uh, last Christmas on our break, and I realized there was just nothing quite like it 
in the, uh, in con the contemporary kind of Protestant world. So we're trying to find a way to, in a true Wesleyan style, borrow and learn. One of the ways we want to uh, demonstrate today is the connection between our bodies and the doctrine of the incarnation and the bodily resurrection. This is the connection I want to make today. Now, one of the themes we also hear today a lot is like, why do Christians talk about this issue so much? Like, why is this like exploded churches apart? Isn't this kind of like a massively minor issue? Isn't this uh, much ado about nothing? Or to use a good Southern expression, isn't this making a mountain out of a molehill? And so the question is, is that true? Or is, in fact, there's something deeper going on here that's profoundly connected to something deeper? And part of the, tr the thrust of this whole series, and this today particularly, is to show that part of a theology of the body is to develop a new awareness about the connections between a number of cultural issues related to the body and human sexuality and the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's very, very important. So one of our themes is that the human body has both physical and spiritual meaning. Physically, we're created in male and female with practical functions, practical capacities for union, self-donation, covenant faithfulness, the bearing of children to reflect God's act as creator. But our bodies also have deep spiritual meanings, and this is why at times we find ourselves, even as Protestants, certainly as Wesleyans, we find ourselves using sacramental language to talk about marriage we would probably use the phrase means of grace. We do this because we recognize that marriage does in fact bring out some deep spiritual truths as it is our whole body as a self. The fact that Paul himself, when speaking of marriage last week, he says, I'm talking about the mystery of Christ and his church, Matthew 19, Ephesians 5. So the picture of the church as bride and as the marriage supper of the lamb, of course, comes out eschatologically in our two texts today in Revelation 19, 6-9, and then, of course, the New Jerusalem coming down as a bride in Revelation 21, 1-4, a bride adorned for her husband. This, of course, draws on the whole analogy of Christ and his church, and the Bible was, in fact, framed by the Adam and Eve marriage and ultimately the marriage of Christ and his church. It frames the whole of biblical revelation. So that's what we saw last week, that marriage is not an end in itself, uh, this is where the whole celibacy comes in and the wonderful gift of singleness because it anticipates the true final marriage where there is no actual marriage but the fulfillment of Christ and his church. Now, the amazing mystery of this Revelation text is that Christ and his church does not fall out of the like, revelatory sky, out of the blue in Revelation 19 and 21. When you read it, you must see that it's deeply woven and should call to mind the Old Testament that Yahweh is Israel's husband. You have to recall, for example, Isaiah 54, 5, where Yahweh declares, your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Lord will call you back as a wife distressed in spirit. So the idea of Christ in the church is not new to the, Old Te to the, to the New Testament. Israel is God's bride. And through the gospel, eventually, encompasses not just the remnant of Israel, but all peoples, all nations. It encompasses the world. And so God in Israel in the Old Testament eventually becomes broadened to Christ in the church in the New Testament. 
So the marriage between a man and a woman is a type or a picture of this greater truth and always was, even in the Old Testament, between God and Israel. John Paul II, therefore, calls marriage the great analogy. Another place he calls it the pedagogy of the body. These are great phrases that you can tweet out at your leisure. Now, this, of course, is what supremely happens in the incarnation of Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus embodies the gospel in his very presence in the world. We've said throughout that the incarnation is the final definitive link between theology and anthropology. To destroy the bridge of the body is to disconnect God from the physicality of the world. That leaves us with Aristotle's unmoved mover or the Hindu, you know, Naguna Brahman or something. It doesn't leave us with a God of biblical revelation. The word incarnation, which is, of course, a valued theological word, but it's actually not that complicated, comes from John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It just means in the flesh. God visiting us in the flesh. If you weren't here yesterday to hear uh, Dr. Geyertsen's uh, wonderful homily on, uh, on All Saints Day, his whole point was, beautifully stated, that when the prophets had spoken and spoken and spoken, finally God says, I, they're not getting it. The only way to get the message is to send it in a body. Okay, the incarnation of God sent his message in a body. The Arians, of course, had to be challenged in uh, Chalcedonian you know, conversations because they said, quote, there was a time when he was not. They were challenging the idea that the eternal God would actually enter into a human body because that seemed very messy because of the Gnostic tendencies of the day. The body was an evil thing. So the church rightly said, no, the eternal God actually entered into a human body. The second part of the Trinity, without compromise, became a man. This was and is shatteringly earth-shaking. Colossians 1.19, Colossians 2.9.9, really drive it home. Listen to this. Paul, Colossians 1.19. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. See, the Monophites said, you know, when it came down, the, it, the deity obliterates the humanity and all that. They said, no, 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 no. Colossians 2.9. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. No compromise of his humanity, no compromise of his deity the theantropic man, God in man, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. That's the Christian position. This means that the body is designed to be the recipient of divine fullness. Think about it. God believes in bodies. He designed them with these functional and spiritual capacities. And we've noted throughout this series, all the means of grace come through bodies. Bodies are baptized. Bodies take sacraments. Ears hear God's word. Eyes read God's word. The, uh, the, the donation of the world comes through bodies. And of course, the incarnation happens in a body. Now, the early church had to fight for this. And just so we won't feel too discouraged that we're in a 40-year fight, it took them several hundred years to get through it. Just be prepared. We may not see the backside of this. But it's okay. We're in the church. We have all the time in the world. But the first, the first century did a lot of fighting with the Gnostics over this point because the Gnostics believed they had a special knowledge, a gnosis. 
that they through them, they're much their thought, the general theme, there's of course many Gnostic movements, but the general kind of common denominator is the body is evil and cannot be trusted. In short, the body is a trap which must be overcome and release the light within, discover the true you within. They didn't have all the good commercials that we have today, but they had it, they had the idea. This is still dominant in Buddhism and Hinduism, though in different ways, neither of one accept the Christian view of the body. Now today we're seeing a, a re-emphasis or a resurgence of a lack of confidence in the human body. And it's actually helpful to remember the, the, bio, the, the New Testament actually has three very interesting truths that are repeated over and over again. One, your heart is deceitful. Your mind needs renewing, but your body is trustworthy. Now that is just the opposite. In fact, the third point, John is so upset with the Gnostics. John, like, at one point, like, really gets upset in the, in the epistles. If anybody says Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh, they're an antichrist. Well, wow, you know, this is like, you know, this is not like a mild point for him. This is a serious problem for him. Whereas today, we have, of course, just the opposite of truths or, or, or ideas. The heart must always be followed. Your mind is always clear, and your body is untrustworthy. You see, you see, the culture has exactly reversed the actual biblical vision. So today, we would, they would say, without, and particularly this is the, with the gender reassignment issues, you might be a woman trapped in a man's body. You might be a man trapped in a woman's body. The point being, you cannot trust your body. You can trust your heart. And two, that there are no ethical boundaries inherent in our creation as male and female. Those are huge issues that we must reclaim in the church. And we've been, frankly, painfully slow in recognizing this. But I think we should actually make a slight change in our vocabulary Whenever we refer, refer to the incarnation and the resurrection of Christ, we should make it clear and say the bodily incarnation and the bodily resurrection. Because that's certainly the heart of the New Testament. Christ's bodily resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 argues, is the first fruits, this word aparche, the first fruits of our resurrection. So the New Testament makes a great point that no, no, there's a connection to these two things. The resurrection of Christ is not disconnected from our resurrection. What happens to his body happens to our body. If he's not raised, we're not raised. This is really dramatic stuff. Despite all the popular discourse in our kind of common hallway Christian conversation, I hate to surprise you, but God is not saving souls. God is not saving souls. God is not, the, your future is not a soul flitting about in a disembodied state. Do I hear an amen? amen. That's all other, like still, the, the, that's like the reverb, reverb of the first three centuries. We can't quite get out of our system. In fact, God's saving bodies. He's saving you. That's why he says your body is so beautiful. Because he's saving all of it, just as it is. This is why the church, and this is why I love the Wesleyan vision, is so committed to a full view of what salvation actually means. We cannot turn a deaf ear to the bodily plight of Syrian refugees. Because those are bodies that are suffering. If we don't take that seriously, we haven't taken the incarnation seriously. 
Because the incarnation validates our concern for the bodily work, life of refugees. We must care for women caught in human trafficking because God became flesh in Jesus Christ. We must feed bodies that are hungry. These are not ancillary tasks which the church does when their real work is over with. Or we do it so that maybe somebody might decide something for Jesus Christ. Even if the Syrian refugees born, raised, and die Muslims. God forbid I want everybody on the planet to fall down and love Jesus, okay? But if, if they don't, we still help them. We still serve them. That's what Christianity is because we're committed to the body. And we know that if we don't care for the body, then we've actually not lived out the gospel. There are thousands of ways in which the world disincarnates the human body and the gospel overturns them all. Well, the final point I want to make is about how this might inform our debate about egalitarianism and complementarianism. Oh, what a, what a sound I have today. <laughs> now I know I have your attention. Egalitarianism emphasizes the equality of the genders. The term complementarian emphasizes distinction between the genders. And this, of course, has been a very big dividing line between denominations and movement, how it relates to marriage, headship, submission, ordination, leadership, roles, and a host of other things come down to this. But when seen through the mystery of Christ in the church, it might come take on a different hue. Two weeks ago, we explored the wonderful truth of man and woman as subjects. In my mind, this is a testimony to egalitarianism. A woman is never related to a man as an object, and vice versa. Rather, they're both full subjects. In marriage, one is not subsumed by the other, to the other, which, by the way, it, the whole thing is meant to mirror the incarnation. The humanity of Christ is not destroyed when the incarnation happens. It all, they, they, there's two united as one, right? So therefore, submission is not the duty of one. Submission is always the call to all. The wife submits to her husband as unto the Lord, and the husband lays down his life for his wife just as Christ laid down his life for the church. Both are called to self-donation as two subjects. However, just as Christ and the church is not one thing but two glories brought together in the marriage of the Lamb, so each of us brings our own unique glories to the union. These glories can't be placed, and make this clear, I do not believe they can be placed into universally defined vocational roles or appropriate tasks. I've said many times here, as far as I'm concerned, women should answer the call to every single job in the universe except for the papacy. It's not yet open to them. But other than that, go for it, okay? I'm all for it. We each bring distinctive perspectives, which in the Christian vision are not sanded down. They're not domesticated. Your femaleness and all of its glory and your maleness and all of its glory is not sanded down or domesticated in the union in the one flesh relationship or in the church as we serve in all of us in the bride of Christ. This is the testimony to complementarianism. This is actually one of those interesting debates where both sides are right and both sides are wrong. In the cultural context of autonomous solitude, the genders are at war with each other. 
And they struggle for power and dominion over the other. And that's the song of the culture. And we have been caught up into it. And even scriptures can be used as bludgeons against the other as we struggle to position ourselves into the siren song of autonomy. But in the greater song of the new creation, we see it's only through dying and self-donation that we discover the true meaning of our own identity. The identity can only be fully realized in community and reflected in the family, the church, and ultimately the triune God, the eternal sweet society. We have a lot of hard work to build healthy families that can actually demonstrate that. If you come from a family of brokenness, it's extraordinarily difficult. But I have a very, my first pastorate, a man in his church, my church who'd been told since he was high enough to stand on his feet, his mother and father told him, you will never amount to anything. Can you imagine being told that all your life? And he had deep scars over that. And it affected his employment and all kinds of things. But one time he said something very beautiful to me. He said, you know, even though this tape is in my head, I'm not going to pass it down to my children. And he always told his little girl and his little boy, wherever we were together, he said to them, you can do anything. You can be anything God's called you to be. And those two children are beautiful examples of God's work. We're in a multi-generational work, and many of you are going to have to rebuild things that have been bro broken down in your own experience. Christ is the head. He led in his life for the church, and then he calls us joint heirs with him. The church, in turn, joyfully submits to Christ, but then we're summoned into his glorious presence in full union with the triune God. So egalitarianism and complementarianism are actually not two things, but different aspects of one thing, the great mystery of Christ and his church. Amen.